We live in a world plagued by pornography, and people are looking for help. When an individual struggles with pornography, they often turn to their church leader for that help. How does a leader help a person overcome the shame of this issue and start seeing positive progress? How can a leader help youth to open up about struggles with pornography? What are some lasting, proven tactics that actually make a difference? In order to help, Leading Saints has created the Liberating Saints Library with more than 20 presentations featuring individuals who have a unique perspective or expertise around this topic. Three of those most popular sessions are available to watch now. Simply text the word LEAD to 474747 to start watching now or visit leadingsaints.org liberating. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead, and we do that through content creation, like this podcast, which we hope you will subscribe to. We also have a website at leadingsaints.org with thousands of incredible articles all about leadership in the context of being a Latter-day Saint. We host virtual summits, live events, and also have a weekly newsletter to keep you up to date on all things happening with Leading Saints. Visit leadingsaints.org for more information. Today, I am uh, sitting down through the powers of the internet with Blair Hodges. How are you, Blair? I'm great. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm glad we, we finally uh, got this worked out. Uh, some of these interviews, uh, you know, there's some opposition we have to push through from time <laughs> to time uh, with aligning schedules and whatnot. But m many people may recognize your name and voice from the uh, Maxwell Institute podcast, which you were the host for of for many years, and but recently have uh, moved on to uh, your, your own podcast called Fireside with Blair Hodges. And uh, how would you describe, I mean, what's your, how has your, your podcast journey been in general? Well, it actually started out back at Fair, Fair uh, Mormon, which oh, okay. I think it was, it, they've had several name changes. I yeah, don't I know, right? remember what it was when I started there, but Fair. Uh, and at the time, uh, John DeLynn's podcast was taking off, Mormon Stories. It was really popular. And you know, I I felt like there was a lot of hunger out there for audio content talking about issues, talking about difficult issues. And that was really the only Mormon show or Latter-day Saint show on the market. And so I proposed a fair to do a podcast there. And I was studying journalism at the time at the University of Utah. And so I was taking classes in audio journalism and thought, oh, this would be a good opportunity to get some professional skills, but also to 
to serve my religious community. And so FAIR let me start that show. And I think I did about 10 episodes there before I went to grad school and had to take a break. But um, that left enough of a impression on people that the Maxwell Institute tracked me down when I was finishing up my master's degree and invited me to come and work there and start a show there. So that's where the Maxwell Institute podcast began. And I did that for eight years and got to interview all kinds of incredible scholars of religion from our tradition and from all sorts of different traditions. Yeah. And the Maxwell Institute, correct me if I'm wrong, is a part of uh, Brigham Young University. And so were, were you a like were you employed by them to do the podcast or how did that work? Yeah. Well, the position was a communications position, so it included the podcast, but it included a lot more than that. And yeah, it was at Brigham Young University. And um, so, yeah, it's a church institution. I worked for the church for those eight years. And yeah. Nice. And how would you describe your own personal like faith development? Uh, were you raised in the church and how did your conviction of the gospel progress? I was raised in the church. My parents are both members and... I kind of typical grew up here in in Utah and served a mission in Wisconsin. And during my mission, I got really interested in reading a lot. And I read through the missionary library so many times that finally I went to my mission president and said, "Hey, I, you know, I've read Jesus the Christ five times, and can I, can I branch out? Uh, I'm also doing my scripture study. Can I branch out?" And my mission president was was a great great man and encouraged me to do that. So I started reading pretty widely. I read the Quran and I read uh, a bunch of C.S. Lewis and other things like that and uh, started meeting with people of other faiths, not just to teach them, but also to kind of learn. I, I, f I quickly found that if I was just there to kind of send information at them, uh, it was less effective than, than if I understood where they were coming from and, uh, and starting from a base of, of common belief. And in order to do that, I had to listen and I had to learn. And so I made a point to attend as many different religious meetings from different uh, religious groups that I could as a missionary. And just, man, it just really lit my lit a fire in me. And yeah. when I got home, that's how I connected up with FAIR. I saw that they were uh, intellectually driven uh, in, in a way that wanted to understand our faith intellectually and, and respond to criticisms. And, um, and I, you know, I had gone through a lot of those questions myself. And, and so um, I went kind of through that uh, apologetic uh, path uh, and then got connected with religious studies, uh, which is a little bit different. And we can talk about that a little bit later on, but that's kind of my path was through regular church membership, missionary work, connecting with other traditions, defending my own faith, and then learning more about my own faith and other faiths. Yeah. And then how did that impact your education journey when you got home? Yeah. So I wanted to do journalism. Um, I've always liked to write and I thought I would just be a regular journalist, but uh, the more conversations I got into about religion, the more interested I became in religious studies. And I actually had an opportunity as an undergraduate when I finished my bachelor's degree to join Terrell Givens at the Maxwell Institute for a summer seminar that they were doing. Richard Bushman, the biographer of Joseph Smith, started these a number of years ago. And this is where they take a number of students together during the summer and they all get together and read a bunch of primary sources. We go back in the archives and read a bunch of early literature written by Latter-day Saints. And then we write papers about what we find. And under the tutelage of, of these great uh, Latter-day Saint scholars and uh, Terrell Givens led my seminar. 
and I still have really uh, some really great friends from that seminar. And I, <laughs> I had just finished my bachelor's and I realized I want to do religious studies. I, I want to actually continue to do this. And so I applied for graduate schools around the country. I got accepted into Georgetown University and uh, moved out there and did their religious studies degree. So Nice. And uh, so where do you see your, your career going uh, at this point? Well, at this point, so I spent eight years, I had a degree in communications and religious studies. And so the Maxwell Institute was a great fit for that. I was a communication specialist with a religious studies background. And so I was able to kind of bridge a divide between scholars and more, more general public. Um, and, and while I was there, I also did, you know, dis graphic design and photography and, uh, all kind of book promotion. And I edited the Living Faith series, all kinds oh. of things. And I really loved it. Uh, working there for eight years, over time, it, it can be difficult uh, to work for the church sometimes for me. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a more liberal member of the church. And uh, so, you know, there are pressures there uh, regarding that. And over time, I just felt like, you know, I, I want to try something new. I, I was also at my professional ceiling there. Um, I was the communication specialist for the Institute, but didn't really want to go higher up at BYU into the communications uh, department for the whole university. And so I just started looking around and found a nonprofit communications director job. So I actually work in Salt Lake City now at a nonprofit as a communications director. Uh, that's my day job. We work on things like homelessness and mental illness and addiction. And then I started my own podcast because I, I want to stay connected to the academy and to thoughtful Latter-day Saints and thoughtful people who were Latter-day Saints and people who never were Latter-day Saints, but like talking about religion. And so uh, that's why I started my new podcast. And uh, and I don't have to like get paid for it. I don't have to worry about it. It's actually kind of nice to to do it as not a paid job. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned you're a, you said you're a more liberal Latter-day Saint. Uh, what does that look like? Because obviously we have, uh, you know, typically seen as a very conservative church. I think, I guess, most Christian religions are, are seen more conservatively. But what, what do you mean by a more liberal Latter-day Saint? And then how has that impacted just your, your existence as a Latter-day Saint in this culture? Sure. So over time, I've kind of made a transition from a typical kind of American white male Latter-day Saint who believes in certain things about America and its destiny or about how, how politics should work, um, mm -hmm. the role of government, um, issues like that, that I just tend to see differently than a lot of church members in the United States anyways. Uh, you know, I, I vote Democrat, for example. Um, I don't I don't know a lot of Democrat Latter-day Saints in my own wards. I haven't known a lot. So, you know, it's kind of a minority position. Um, I see things differently from the church on certain issues, uh, LGBT issues, um, uh, gender and sexuality issues. So I don't always feel in my heart that I can line up with uh, particular church teachings. And so, you know, that, that, that that can be tricky. And yeah. um, when I worked at BYU, uh, it was it was actually there was so much happening there that was wonderful, and that that I felt really good about that. It, um, that I I'm really proud of the work I was able to accomplish there, and uh, you know worked hard to represent the church as a church employee. Uh, I recognize. Um, when you know when you work for a place, there there are certain expectations that you meet, and I worked hard to meet those. And uh, but that's what I mean when I say liberal is just yeah. di disagreeing on certain issues. And uh, yeah. So and this is an interesting concept because I think a lot of uh, leaders, you know, obviously the leadership, the lay leadership is generally more orthodox, and I think a lot of them want to find a place for you know those that are maybe more liberal to feel comfortable at church to feel like. Um, 
you know, that you're part of that community and whatnot. Has that ever been a, a friction point for you? Like, um, has it come to a point of uh, wondering if you really have a place in this community or? Oh, sure. Um, you know, I've had some, uh, I've had some great bishops and other bishops that were really difficult for me um, in the same, within the same ward. Uh, yeah. You know, when I, when we first moved back to Salt Lake uh, from, when I came back from grad school, had an incredible bishop, Jordan Howe, uh, really thoughtful guy. Um, uh, I think <laughs> when you have a Leaders have like bookworms in their wards. He's kind of like nerdy. There's always the like guy in, in Sunday school yeah. who, who speaks Hebrew, right? And yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I recognize we're kind of weird, and so I, I try to to um, to just kind of blend into the congregation. But uh, for for this particular bishop, he understood, and I, I felt free to talk with him about some of the things uh, that I believed, and, um, and and I never felt pressured by him or judged by him. Um, another uh, bishop just had a lot of problems with anybody who had any kind of disagreement with any particular thing that, that he believed. And that was difficult. Um, mm-hmm. That was difficult. So uh, there, there is, there's a lot that leaders can do to promote a climate of welcome. And I know for some, it's a really hard needle to thread. They feel like they need to uphold certain doctrines or um, kind of gatekeep uh, to keep things uh, clear, to keep things above board and so forth. Uh, I think that the church would be a healthier place if we had more room for some disagreement uh, and 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 honored honored, honorable and, and honest disagreements that church members have be- between each other. And yeah, you know, that's a that's a process. Yeah. So I'm curious. Like just from your experience, some specific things leaders could do, because I think sometimes it's the feeling of like, well, you know, I'm glad Blair's in our ward and I hope he comes with a chili cookoff, but let's not get him in front of the Sunday school class, you know, as a teacher type thing. But when in reality, that's probably where you would shine and and because you're well read and, and have a lot of sources and whatnot that you can and perspectives from other, you know, religions or whatever it is that you could really create a well rounded, thoughtful, um, uh, discussion or, or lesson there, but is there? I mean, do you feel like you're sort of alienated from some of those some of those callings of of influence or callings of teaching or um, what? What can yeah, a leader do? I, sure, I don't expect personally to be like I'm not going to be a bishop or stake president. It's just not in my, you know, I don't have like the I don't have the background for that. But I have taught Sunday school. It's my favorite calling. Oh. And within this within the same ward, I had one bishop who wanted me to teach Sunday school more than anything else. And then I had another bishop who didn't want me to teach Sunday school at all. Uh, and now I'm in a ward where they where I do teach Sunday school. They love it and I love it. And it's a really good situation. So it does depend on the leader in terms of what leaders can do. It's really difficult because I understand the position that leaders are in if they feel like someone is using their calling as a platform, um, you know, I, I think that could be a sort of a kind of unrighteous dominion that a teacher could could exercise. One of the things I try to do in my classes is provide a lot of space for different perspectives, including perspectives that I personally disagree with, um, and to include voices in lessons uh, in a way that that lets everybody feel like they can add to the conversation and not 
not be shouted down, maybe not be agreed with either. Uh, and that's, that's a difficult thing to cultivate. It takes time. So I don't have any secret tips for bishops other than just to continue to work with people. I will say this though, there's a phenomenon that happens in wards where someone in the ward will become, will, will be ruffled by something, mm-hmm. let's say. Uh, and I've, I've seen this, I was Sunday school president. So I, I dealt with this, uh, with some of my other teachers that I had called into their callings, um, Someone would go to the bishop and say, uh, sister so-and-so said this in her lesson, and I don't think that's right. I think this is a big problem. Kind of a little bit of tattletale culture. Uh-huh. And it's really difficult when a bishop contacts a teacher as though they've done something wrong. Yeah. Um, I, I'm of the view that if someone has a complaint or a, a difference of opinion, they need to work on addressing it with the person that they're disagreeing with. I mean, the scriptures talk about uh, if a brother offends you, you know, take them aside and talk to them, right? And so I think that bishops and Relief Society presidents and others can do a lot to, to address this kind of tattletale culture. So if someone comes to a leader and says, oh, uh, brother so-and-so said this in a lesson to say, oh, well, how did you feel about that? And well, what's your view on that? Oh, that's interesting. Did you did you share that with the teacher? Oh, hmm, do you, would you like to? Uh-huh. That's that's going to be a better approach than having a, a really awkward meeting with the teacher. And and I've had a few of those uh, in the past, and it never feels good. It always it it feels invasive and awkward, and it feels unfair. There's a there's an imbalance of power there. Mm. The bishop has this has has a lot of authority, uh, and and the teacher's in a vulnerable position. So, although you know, I'm sympathetic to members who feel like something is said that's harmful. Uh, let's say there's someone with a, a gay child in a ward, and, and something is said about uh, about people who are gay that that really hurts that parent, and they go to the bishop and say, you know, this teacher said this it was really it really hurt. Um, I would I would hope the same thing that that they that the bishop would be able to say oh yeah hey um, that's really rough can we would you like to talk about that more uh, can can we maybe meet with the teacher can we kind of you know and and foster the idea that you know what it's actually okay to disagree on this stuff that's actually okay yeah. we don't need everybody to repeat the same thing so it can happen on wherever on the sort of political, whatever you want to call it, spectrum people fall on, this tattletale culture can be uh, can be turned around into a culture of connection. That's the goal, uh, rather than having someone uh, you know, make a complaint and then have the bishop sort of say, well, don't do that, um, but rather to get together and talk about it uh, or to encourage that person to address it with the teacher uh, rather than just, you know, tattling. Yes. Yeah. You know, and there's, there's sort of this uh, principal's office dynamic that can, that can surface yeah. real quick. And, and no matter how you position that or how you call them in or what, like, there's always that feeling of like, you've done something wrong and I'm here to sort of, uh, you know, correct you. And uh, when in reality, there's maybe some other open, more open communication or encouraging members to discuss amongst themselves or approach each other rather than going to the principal to, to handle it and come yeah. down with a hammer. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's yeah. right. And, and I'm curious your thoughts on this concept of like teaching doctrine, right? Like I think generally speaking, I think most members would agree like in, in Sunday school and church, like the hope is that doctrine is taught and understood and, you know, elder Packer mentioned as far as the power of teaching doctrine, you know, is more powerful than, than, uh, in changing behaviors than the study of behaviors. Obviously I'm poorly paraphrasing that, but 
No, that's word for yeah, word. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the point being is like sometimes we have this feeling like, oh, well, if, if Brother Hodges stands up there and says something that I don't think is right, we got to make sure that that's cleared up because we're sort of poisoning yeah. the well. Like what if he says yeah. that and then 10 other members think that and then we perpetuate this this false doctrine when in reality, I don't think a lot of members just sort of grasp as far as what doctrine is and when it's taught, when it isn't. And is that the only reason we go to Sunday school is to re- rehearse doctrinal principles and and clarify those things or is there an invitation maybe explore just different thoughts and then how they overlay it on our current social experience right or our day-to-day lives or politics or our you know whatever it is like how do these principles come into our life so so what are what are your thoughts as far as like mm-hmm. what is doctrine and then like what's yeah. the purpose of that doctrine being taught in church Okay, I'm going to answer this in a sort of roundabout okay. way, but I'm going to get I'll to that what is doctrine question. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is where comparative religion is really helpful. So let's think about how our Sunday school actually works. So if you're, let's say you've never been to one and you visit one and you go and sit down and you see like how a teacher usually addresses the class and what role the class is supposed to play. Well, let's compare that to Catholicism where they have catechism, which is a kind of class where students go and they receive information from a teacher and they repeat it back and things are pretty scripted out. Uh, there are there are particular questions and there are proper answers to those questions. And in order to uh, prepare for confirmation in the Catholic Church, you go through these catechism classes, kind of like our missionary discussions, but it's pretty formulaic. It's uh, it's to get things straight. It's to be on the same page, even though Catholicism is a very diverse, even more diverse than Latter-day Saint uh, religious tradition based on its age. But there's this expectation of, of formula. And I think sometimes Latter-day Saint Sunday schools fall into that, even though we're not trying to. Uh-huh. There are particular questions that get asked every four years when we hit a particular thing, uh, verse of scripture and particular answers that are given pretty much every year. You can kind of count on, on a catechism type of an approach fairly regularly, I think, in the church. Now, compare that to Quakers. Uh, Quakers are a religious group where they would all sit together in a room and nobody in particular leads the discussion. They sit in quiet. And then when someone is moved upon by the spirit, they will stand up and and speak and say kind of what's on their mind, a little mini fast and testimony meeting type of a situation. Uh, and anybody can get up and say what's in their heart and talk about, you know, uh, what they're feeling or what they believe. And there can be differences of opinion and they're not all trying necessarily to get to the same exact uh, answer. Uh, they're trying to get to the same feeling and the same connection. So those are kind of two sides of, of two ends of a spectrum. On the one hand, it's very formulaic. On the other hand, it's very open. Mm. And I think Latter-day Saints can go back and forth across that spectrum of things. And when we think about in our tradition, what doctrine is, we tend to think of doctrine, I think, as true things. Yeah. True official things is what doctrine is. And there's you'll hear church leaders talk about the pure doctrine, pure doctrine. And for me, I, I'm skeptical of the idea of pure doctrine. And the reason comes from our scripture. Uh, this is in the Doctrine and Covenants where God says, I, I speak to my servants according to their understanding. I speak in their language. And language itself has so much baggage and so many, uh, so, so much backstory that anytime we're trying to express eternal truths in human language, we're already mingling it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with and, and t- there's there's that famous phrase about the philosophies of men being mingled with scripture. I actually think I actually think that's 
inescapable. It's sort of like in the Bible where, where Satan says, you know, you won't die. You'll be as the gods, knowing good and evil. He's kind of telling them the truth there. They will, in a sense. I think it's the same thing with this, you know, philosophies of men mingle the scripture, which is we're always mingling stuff. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's not true. That just means we have to be humble and open to further light and knowledge. So whenever we're talking about our doctrine, we're always already putting it into our language and into our concepts and our categories and our backgrounds and our histories. And we're always mixing it that way. And that makes it accessible and understandable to us. That's what makes us able to talk about it at all. And that's why it's so important to have many different voices talking because different experiences, different backgrounds, different races, different, uh, you know, uh, men and women and, and, and everything uh, can bring different truths and different views to a doctrinal conversation. So we have official teachings of the church. And I think they're pretty clear and they're pretty set out, but there's also a lot that we don't have nailed down exactly. Just one example would be like, what's our doctrine of the afterlife? Well, we believe families can be together forever, right? We believe that there are certain ordinances that that people will undergo to, uh, to affirm their family relationships throughout eternity, through God's grace, through the atonement of Christ, right? But what does that really look like? And uh, President Oaks in a recent general conference got up and, and basically said, that he doesn't really know exactly what that's going to look like. There are questions about different ceiling configurations, for example, between uh, women and men. And he, he basically said, you know, <laughs> there's actually quite a bit we don't know about the logistics here. So we have official doctrines about the afterlife, what it looks like. But there's also a lot of space uh, about things that we don't have a complete grasp of. And that keeps us open. We have an article of faith that says we expect... Many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God to yet be revealed. And so when we when we think of our doctrine, sometimes we get rigid and think we, that we've got it all nailed down. And I, I just tend to think that we're safer when we are a bit more humble about that and a bit more open to different perspectives. Yeah. So that's a long way of answering no, a that. question about official doctrine and how Sunday school yeah, works. And, and I appreciate the concept, you know, as far as this mingling with scriptures, that, that sort of can be turned into a trump card in our cultures. Like, well, it sounds yeah. like this teacher was doing a lot of, you know, uh, philosophies of men mingled with their their scriptures. And, and to realize that as mortals, we that's almost impossible to escape uh, mingling. Yeah. And, and, and as I'm sitting in a class and I hear somebody say something, or even the teacher says something, and I think, I don't think that's entirely true uh, how he yeah. he framed that, but I'm going to have patience with that as they're they're mingling because I do a lot of mingling too. But it's in that mingling yeah. where I find a a deeper faith and and a more complete framework to maybe see the gospel to actually apply my behavior in life through the gospel rather than saying like oh, I got the formula and we got to make sure we don't uh, you know uh, venture off from this formula. We have to we can't yeah. mingle it with anything else. But in reality, there's there's nothing. It's almost impossible to avoid, right? And that's okay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Think about it in terms of rigidity, like a rigid thing versus a durable thing. Yeah. When we think we've got everything locked down, we can become brittle. I've seen it happen a lot where someone is very sure about certain things. They Everything's got to be a certain way. And then um, a policy will change or uh, a general authority will offer a different view of a doctrine. And usually our leaders don't explicitly say that they're kind of uh, correcting something from the past. They just sort of <laughs> do it without pointing out that they're doing it, but it happens. Yeah. And I've seen that be really hard for some people and and kind of break them. And 
that's that's because there's no flexibility there. They think that that rigidity is strength, but I would rather have something durable, you know, something durable that's that's that can bend with the with a little bit of pressure that can withstand um, change and and can withstand new information. So I think it's it's a strength to be able to hold space for uncertainty and to. Uh, let go of the need to be certain about everything. Yeah. And, you know, it, it takes my mind to, I was, uh, when I was serving as bishop, every four or five years, we got to go to this meeting with an apostle and Elder Renlin was there. And and he told a, a story about uh, a question that was asked to Elder Bednar about something that Joseph F. Smith had said. And it was interesting to hear that Elder Bednar just frankly said, well, that's because Joseph F. Smith was wrong about that that component. It was almost like this record scratch moment. Like, wait, wait, what did you say? You know, just realizing that even our leaders are sort of, they're exploring different concepts. And, um, and over time as a, um, whether it's an individual apostle or leader, maybe we'll correct that with, with how he sees things, or if it's, it's even, even better when the joint body of the brethren come together and really create a correction there. Um, but just to see that, wow, there's some ebbs and flows along even, the the faith and perspectives of our our leaders over over decades of time. Yeah, that reminds me of I have a really good example of that that happened on my mission. When I was when I was speaking of rigidity, I was I include myself in this, and here's yeah. the story. So, <laughs> uh, as a missionary, as I said, I got to read a ton of stuff, and I started reading as a bunch of general authorities. I read all of Joseph Fielding Smith's answers to gospel questions uh-huh. and Bruce R. McConkie's Mormon doctrine, and I was reading all of these things. And about halfway through my mission, I was assigned a, a new companion. So I was going to be his trainer. And uh, first day, we're talking about, you know, uh, hey, so what do you do? And he said, oh, I, I came from BYU. I'm studying epidemiology, which I, you know, I assume he's <laughs> right now at this time. Uh, thank you for studying epidemiology. They're yeah. <laughs> desperately needed. But uh, he told me, yeah. So I, and I said, oh, what have you done so far? He talked about his biology classes. And I said, oh, great. So this is at BYU. Did they, did they debunk evolution like just amazingly? And, and he kind of said, well, you know, he was, and I could tell he instantly was trying to be ginger with me and was just like, well, yeah. So no, um, no, we, we just had regular classes that talked about evolution. And I said, what? And he said, yeah. And I said, wait a minute, they're teaching evolution at BYU? And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, it's it's a very sound scientific principle. It's the basis of modern medicine. It's the basis of, you know, he's going on. And I said, that's not possible. And I, and I said, you understand that the church says evolution is false. And he said, well, um, you know, some leaders said that, but the church doesn't that's not a, you know, an official teaching now. And I said, yeah, it is. Look. And I went and got my books. I had just been reading Joseph Fielding Smith saying how, you know, basically evolution wasn't just wrong. It was evil. It was yeah. like, uh, <laughs> that the idea of it was atheistic and, and terrible. And I'm showing him this stuff, trying, and I'm like, look, look, and trying to make him read stuff. And, and he was really patient with me. He didn't get, he didn't get upset. He didn't tell me to shut up. Uh, he, but he also didn't, try to uh, pretend like he was agreeing either. He just said, look, I have a different view. I understand. I'm not trying to change your mind about that. I'm just telling you, this is what I'm learning in school. This is what I'm learning at BYU. I believe these things. I don't think they contradict gospel principles, but, but I'm not trying to, you know, you're fine. Like don't. And he gave me a lot of space and 
it kind of blew my mind. I think that's the first time I can remember. That is the first time I can remember seeing a member of the church just say that a prophet was wrong about something, Hmm. was just wrong about something. And to do it in a way that maintained love and fidelity, obviously, to our tradition. I mean, he was a missionary. So uh, he was out, (laughs) you know, spreading the gospel message. So clearly for him, somehow it worked for him to say that a prophet could be wrong about something, but still be a faithful member of the church. It blew my mind. And I think him giving me that space, not trying to convert me, but also not really giving ground either on something that he believed, uh, was made a big impact on me. That was the kind of approach. I didn't need an argument. I didn't need him to get, you know, I would have dug in further. Instead, he just planted this seed that later on, you know, I get home and I, one of the first college classes I took when I got home was anthropology. And the first section was on human evolution through the ages. And, and I, and it, you know, I think it would have troubled my faith if I hadn't had someone that I'd seen get through this stuff and find out that it was actually okay. Yeah. And so he was a great example to me. Awesome. Well, uh, I've obviously uh, completely avoided our, our planned outline here, but this uh, I was fascinated by the discussion nonetheless. So let, let's pivot into, uh, as we were talking about, uh, you know, recording in every interview and having a discussion, uh, we, I was curious about just the overall landscape of apologetics. And you've been in many of these circles, everything from from FAIR to the Maxwell Institute to, you know, and then talking old school stuff like farms. And then we have Sunstone and Dialogue and BYU Studies. And as a lay leader, sometimes it feels like, you know, that those are such intellectual crowds, uh, academic crowds that uh, myself, I don't... Cl- classify myself as an academic, it's sort of <laughs> almost intimidating to wade into those waters. But then you have somebody in your ward who's in this, you know, dark night of the soul faith crisis, and you want to get them resources and help. And, you know, I think FAIR does a good job of, of making their um, their articles and whatnot generally available and, and as good resources. And so maybe a, a bishop may push somebody that way or or Relief Society president may say, oh, well, definitely check out the Maxwell Institute. Here's, uh, you know, five episodes that Blair did that are fantastic or whatnot. And so sometimes it's hard to really understand what are these re- resources and should we be uh, skeptical of some or should we be fully embracing or, you know, then we get back into this, you know, what, what you know, the ming- mingling concept, what what are these organizations mingling into some of their 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 uh, you know articles or resources and whatnot? So help paint the picture as far as this apologetic world that's out there that is I would say overall helping the church and and bringing scholarship to the table and and understanding these things. But where should we begin with this 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 discussion? Okay, so I mean we can begin with the very basics, like the word apologetics itself. A lot of church members. May, may not even heard this word. Apologetics, apologia, comes from a Greek word that means a defense. Mm-hmm. And it's found in the New Testament where Paul is saying, uh, encouraging Christians to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in them, to be able to give reason for the hope, right? To be able to reason about it, to give reasons why they have faith. So it's not just a, a blind kind of faith or, or a rather a f- a faith that is without any kind of foundation, like nonsense or gobbledygook. <laughs> and so apologetics happens whenever someone defends a position. So, you know, 
you could defend defending the idea of evolution, for example. There's you could kind of see that as apologetics in the sense that it's a reasoned defense of a position of a theory. And so, religious apologetics is is geared toward helping people who are having uh, doubts or questions about their faith, and it's a way to respond to those. So, someone I remember as a seminary student in high school, Nephi mentions something about snow. In Second Nephi, it says some, it's a metaphor, and I was like, "Wait a minute, was there snow in the where the Nephites were at? That seems like that." Is that a mistake? And I talked to a seminary teacher, and and he didn't freak out. He was just like, "Oh wow, that you're a really close reader. That's I'm that's awesome. Um, let's check that verse out." And he looked at it, and sure enough, Nephi was quoting Isaiah, and if I remember correctly, and um, and I and I thought, "Oh, okay, so you know, this is coming from from a different place in the Bible, etc." Anyway, he gave me an answer. He had an answer ready, and he was kind about it, and and interested that I was interested. Those two things together, I think, are really crucial. The attitude behind apologetics and the content of the apologetics. And I think we have to pay attention to both of those things. So getting a lay of the land for Latter-day Saints, there's a lot of different organizations and groups and publications that are made not by the church institution itself, but by church members or former church members that are answering criticisms or defending particular positions. And... I, it, it, bishops are in a tough spot. There, it's not possible to keep up with all. I, I've <laughs> never been able to. I mean, it was my job yeah. to work in this field and I couldn't keep up with all of them. So I, I don't think anyone should be expected to do that. But I do think it's helpful to ask a couple questions of any particular entity. Um, for example, how close to the institution, how close to the official church is any given outlet. And I'll mention some examples here, uh, but how close to it. So you have the Maxwell Institute at BYU. It's not in the church history department. It's not part of correlation. It doesn't, they don't create Sunday school. They're at BYU. So they're expected to uphold the standards and beliefs and doctrines of the church, but they're at a little bit of a remove. So you might see a little bit more wide ranging thought there. Uh, you will see more wide-ranging thought there, but they're pretty close to the church. We see this with the Religious Studies Center at BYU, another place that publishes books on Latter-day Saint history and thought. We see this with BYU studies coming out of BYU. Uh, so that's pretty close. Then you have a group like uh, The Interpreter, which is a, a journal that publishes stuff on scripture and uh, it formerly, kind of formerly associated with farms, uh, uh, part of that farm's approach of looking in the ancient world and, and finding interesting parallels between the ancient world and, and Joseph Smith's revealed scripture and so on and so forth. And, and farms isn't, isn't around anymore, or did it morph into- correct. Yeah. Uh, so really quickly, yeah. really quickly, farms was an independent entity and uh, BYU went and brought them in and said, we'd actually like to make you part of the university. Will you come in to be part of the university? Mm -hmm. So they did. And it was combined with several other projects at BYU. There was an ancient texts initiative at BYU that they were combined with and some other things. And it became the Neil A. Maxwell Institute. So the Maxwell oh, okay. Institute was a combination of farms and some other things. And farms itself sort of dissolved in a way. It was absorbed into uh, the Maxwell Institute. Excuse me. The Maxwell Institute has a uh, Willis Center for Book of Mormon Studies. And that's, that was kind of the inheritor of the farms. Gotcha. Uh, Part yeah so, so but then um, the Maxwell Institute changed directors or not changed directors but sort of changed direction uh, away from some of that type of like uh, 
apologetic toward new modes of apology uh, of apologetics and that's when interpreter was founded was to kind of continue in this uh this other vein of things and so and interpreter is uh, not part or never has been a part of byu right Correct. Yeah. They're, they're an independent entity. Um, so you have them. Same with Book of Mormon Central, which is also kind of an offshoot of the old farms. Uh, this is John Welch, who the man who discovered chiasmus in the Book of Mormon, this special oh, yeah. literary formula, uh, uh, Book of Mormon Central. And they're really a place, kind of an outlet that can that gathers a bunch of the apologetic material and scholarly material about Mormon's Latter-day Saint scripture and puts it up online and kind of turns it into sound bites and stuff for basically repackaging it for younger generations and things like that. So Book of Mormon Central is one. Uh, and then the, uh, you have groups like Faith Matters, um, which is an independent entity. People say that that falls more on sort of on the open, open-minded end of the spectrum. Uh, they're, they have a lot of different voices that they bring on their podcasts and they publish books. And then you have groups that have been around a long time like Dialogue and Sunstone. And if you have members in your ward that read Dialogue and Sunstone, they're probably more progressive members of the church. They might disagree with the church on uh, social matters. Um, but Dialogue and Sunstone have long been an outlet of really interesting Mormon thought. And it really depends on any given article. Same with farms, any of this stuff. Uh, there's there's no surefire stamp of approval that can be put on any of these entities. Everything that they produce really needs to be evaluated according to its own merits and according to how good it is. So you have Dialogue in Sunstone. You have the Latter-day Saint Women Project, which is an excellent website with resources for people who want to include more voices of women in their lessons and things. Um, and that's a fantastic project. You have FAIR, as I mentioned. And then you have kind of on the more conservative end of things, you have like the Firm Foundation and the Book of Mormon Archaeological Project. And these groups are much more uh, sort of American patriot homeschooling, evolution is bad, uh, these type, you know. Um, so they're sort of more on the on the conservative end of the political spectrum, but they're also apologetic outfits. Uh, they have... There, there's a lot of warfare that kind of goes on between these groups. Uh, they have strong opinions about where the Book of Mormon took place or, you know, what the role of Columbus was or these type of things. So yeah. all across this spectrum, you wonder, like, how close are these to the institution? Most of them that I've mentioned here aren't very close to it at all. You also want to look at um, what the background of the people involved are. So at a place like the Maxwell Institute, these are people with degrees in religion. They've they've studied in the academy. They have credentials there uh, versus a place like FAIR, which is mostly uh, volunteers from all kinds of different backgrounds. And and most of them not trained in religious studies or something like that. So um, it's a it's a lot more open, collaborative, and and amateur. But I don't say that in in the worst sense of that term. I say that in 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 the term of you know, these people aren't doing that for a living. Right. Um, and so yeah, you want to know who's who's doing it. And then the question that I think a lot of leaders want to know is like how. Orthodox are they? How heterodox are they? How how close yeah. <laughs> are they to acceptable Latter-day Saint belief? But that gets back to my original or my earlier comments about making space for differences and making people feel welcome regardless of particular disagreements on particular things. So uh, I think, as I mentioned, the attitude and the spirit of the apologetic is just as important as the content of it. I really firmly believe that. In fact, I, I believe that if apologetics aren't fundamentally grounded in charity, in, in the charity of Christ, 
that they aren't apologetics at all, even if they're trying to defend the church. Yeah. Because without that spirit of charity, without that, then you're not teaching with what the Doctrine and Covenants calls the spirit of truth. It's a great section that says, when you're teaching, are you teaching by the spirit of truth or by some other way? When you're teaching truth, are you teaching by the spirit of truth? So it recognizes that there are ways to teach true things in untrue ways, mm. whether it be through coercion, whether it be through intimidation, mockery, ridicule, anger, uh, division, divisiveness, contention. There are ways to teach true things in untrue ways without the spirit of truth. And so the apologetic approach itself has to embody that that spirit of charity or it's not true apologetics. And that, that can be found on both ends of the, the spectrum of these yes. resources, right? That, that even on the, maybe the more conservative side, you have this, this tone of like mocking those who are in disagreement with the church at times. And, and I don't think that they, you know, they try and, you know, filter those things out. I would, I would assume they don't want generally want that to be their, their message. And then on the other side, you sort of this, this mockery of the, the orthodox at times, like, I can't believe like with mm -hmm. all this, all this evidence, you're, you're still believing or you mm -hmm. still hold on to this principle. Right. But so hopefully across the spectrum, you're going to find good scholarship that isn't necessarily, you know, that's putting forth, forth ideas and perspectives and facts or whatever it is without this tone of, of dismissal of, of maybe the other side of the spectrum. Yeah, I think that's right. In fact, this is where even this is where we could take a page from some critics of the church, uh, where they're able to show empathy, or where they show empathy, where they show kindness, where they show openness. It it that that kind of speaks to that spirit of truth. Now, the particular things they're saying may not be true, but the way they're saying it includes some some validation, emotional validation that people really need when they feel vulnerable or when they feel doubtful or whatever. And so our, our, our apologetics, our defense of the church has to embody that exact, that kind of welcome empathy and giving people the space to differ if, if it comes down to it, not making ultimatums for people, mm -hmm. that there are so many other things that we can embrace together that we don't have to have every single thing to be part of this community. We don't have to be agreed on every single thing. That that's that's toxic. The other thing is as you said, this it's not that uh <laughs> there there's no good good all good or all bad entities out here. Uh nobody believes that they're a villain. Everybody's trying to do something that they <laughs> yeah. believe is, you know. I I don't think I couldn't point to anybody and say, "Oh, they they know that what they're doing is bull crap." I think, you know, everybody pretty much believes what they're doing and uh, even the same entity, like I'll give the far farms is a great example of this. Some of the old farms stuff is pretty bad. It's, it's aggressive. It's snarky. It's sarcastic. It's mean. And, but other, and, and you'll see critics of the church bring this up, like, you know, farms is mean and, or, or even fair, right? Fair is mean, da, da, da. And you can point to stuff where they have been. But you can also point to stuff where they've done some excellent things. They've done some things that really uh, could could help and th that are really useful today. So nobody's all good or all bad. Um, I can't point to any entity that I would say I haven't been able to learn something from a, a particular entity. So yeah. what really uh, matters to me is what's propelling it, what's behind it. Where's that charity? 
Yeah, and, and really approaching these all these organizations, regardless of where you are in the, in the, on the spectrum, of just saying like, you know, I'm probably going to run into things I deeply disagree with, and that's okay. The point isn't that we're trying to get everybody on the same agreement, but the the point is to to explore these different dynamics in our faith tradition, whether it's doctrine or history or or whatever it is, and uh, and just being open minded to the fact that wow, you know that. I completely disagree with that article, but that's, it's actually okay that that article was published because yeah. uh, it's pushing us along and, and hopefully we're finding deeper unity as we share diverse opinions. And, and Right. Diverse. And who among us hasn't changed their mind about something? So, yeah. I mean, there are things I've written or produced that I fundamentally disagree with now. <laughs> so, uh, if I, if I confront the fact that I have to argue with myself sometimes, then I have to allow other people that same space of saying, hey, you know, we can actually disagree and that doesn't make us bad. This is the most important thing I think leaders can do is make space, make welcoming space for people that they can bring, they can have their questions, they can have their disagreements, they're reckoning with those, they're gra grappling with those, and we don't have to fix it all right now. We love them for who they are. We want them to be here because of all this other great stuff too. And there's all this other stuff that we're together on. And that's what matters is finding that common ground, even when we disagree about really big things. And so anyone who's had to change their mind about something themselves should be able to recognize that they still could be wrong about more things. <laughs> and that, yeah. So they need to, uh, for humility's sake and for charity's sake, give space to other people. And when leaders do it, it can change the dynamic of an entire ward. If a leader has an opportunity to, to demonstrate this in a Sunday school class, how incredible. I, I remember one lesson where two, I wasn't teaching it. I was in the, in the congregation and, and two people were disagreeing about something. And the bishop raised their hand and said, Hey, um, I actually think, I'm not sure which of you is correct. This is really interesting. And, uh, and just sort of showed as the leader, that 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 was okay, and and other people in that room who were feeling, I, I guarantee there are other people in that room who were feeling embattled or feeling defensive and feeling like they couldn't say anything. To see the bishop speak up and say, "Oh, hey, yeah, that's interesting," or to see a uh, Relief Society president speak up and offer a different opinion, that helps change the climate of the ward. You're you're helping to demonstrate that charity belongs there. Yeah. And um, I, I, and with that charity, like I'm just thinking with these different uh, resources and organizations, you know, I've, I've rolled my eyes many times at, at articles in Sunstone or Dialogue, just from my more orthodox conservative perspective. But it's easy to sort of fall in the trap like, oh, well, I saw this article once they wrote and it was completely off base. And so I'm going to dismiss the organization completely. But to be more open to saying, you know, they have a place sort of in our cultural discussion as we try and find deeper truth and perspective. And, and, uh, you know, there's some things written, there were some things written in dialogue in the, in the sixties and seventies that, uh, I don't know if it's that or seventies or eighties that, that, uh, that, you know, the Orthodox members completely disagreed with then, but now is sort of embraced as, yep. as more sound doctrine, right? That's now published by the yeah, church historian yeah. press, you know, the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So just being open to the reality that we we can't just dismiss them because of these some articles that we completely disagree with, but just realize you know these are people that they don't see themselves themselves as a villain, like you said, but they're trying to find deeper perspective and, and knowledge there, and and recognizing true that there there are biases in all of these organizations. So it's not like these are infallible people that are uh, 
that are running these things yeah. and publishing and editing these this this content but it's it's a, it's a it's messy right and but nonetheless we shouldn't dismiss it's easy to i get it because sometimes like we need shortcuts there's so much yeah. stuff we do need shortcuts and there are things that i'm less likely to read like uh-huh. A certain publisher or certain whatever, I'm I'm less likely to read it based on experience and just like mm, you know, their I don't their standards aren't academic standards aren't great or whatever. So I get it, I get the shortcuts. But if somebody comes to me with that book and is interested in it, the worst thing I could do is be dismissive and kind of you know jerky about it. Um, but rather to try to make a connection with them. And this is this is what I want to say about all of this apologetic stuff. When we talk about people leaving the church, that's kind of the language we use. They leave the church. They become anti-Mormon, whatever we want to say. There's a word that that I've really been thinking about for years, uh, and the word is disaffection. Hmm. And I've noticed this working at BYU, seeing people become disaffected with the church. And you look at the root of that affection, affection, love. They feel a, they feel, they come to feel unloved. They come to feel disconnected from a spirit of love. They're disaffected from the church. It's a relationship thing. It's about feelings. That's that's what's at the root of all of this. And we'll come up with intellectual reasons. Uh, people will say, I, I came to think Joseph Smith was a liar, or I came to, you know, I didn't like polygamy or uh, whatever the issue may be. But behind that is almost always a disconnection from a feeling of being loved in a community and feeling squeezed out as Patrick Mason talks about in his planted book. Uh-huh. And so that's, that's what we always need to address people with doubts, people with questions, people that seem to differ with us politically or whatever. We need to remember that we're trying to build affection, edification and affection is, is what we're going for here. And that when people disconnect from our religious community that's that's why they're leaving they don't feel welcome that's the that's the bottom line yeah now as we talk about you know these different resources i i mean all these ones that you talked about there's some type of academic standard that they're all trying to live up to would you say that's correct Mm -hmm. and and i don't want to you know as i as i as we're talking about things about you know don't just dismiss these uh these perspectives and thoughts as we go through this I don't want to necessarily put that on all existing platforms in the World Wide Web related to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because they're and, and I loved your perspective on this. I've had individuals ask me about certain platforms that aren't academic platforms. They're similar to you know I don't consider Leading Saints an academic platform. It's just mm-hmm. a place where we try and come and discuss leadership principles in the context of the church and and maybe someday you know we'll figure out uh, the, what those academic standards are and try and reach that standard, but. There are, there are, I've had people approach me about certain platforms out there that many are very critical against the church. And, you know, and I try not to be just generally like, oh, that's evil. Don't, don't go there. Don't listen there. But a lot of them, I say, you know, generally speaking, I just don't think that platform is helpful in anybody's uh, progression of faith, whether they're in the church or out of the church. And so any thoughts as far as like, Mm -hmm. sometimes we can group in all platforms into this group that were of apologetics or or academic groups. Yeah. Here's why that approach, here's why I would uh, discourage that kind of response. Because if a person's bringing it to you, they've already found something helpful about it. Mm. And so you're asking them in that moment to distrust themselves when they're in a very vulnerable 
state of mind. You're basically saying, don't trust yourself. Mm-hmm. You're basically saying that that helpfulness that you thought you felt, you're just wrong about it. So I actually would discourage uh, that kind of approach that would... I, I get it because I mean I feel the same way. <laughs> if I have a friend who starts listening to a Joe Rogan podcast or something, I'm like, oh no 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 no, <laughs> like don't listen to that. That's very bad. Uh-huh. Uh, or I can say, okay, there's something in that show that's connecting with my friend. What is it? And and is there something? Is there something we can talk about? Can I make a connection there based on what they're connecting with there? And connect that to other good things that I like even more. So find a, find a, a place of connection. Why was this helpful to you? Why? What's what's happening here? What are you? What are your thoughts? And then uh, you know validate where they're coming from because the, the reason that they brought it up at all is because it's already been helpful in a way. Yeah. Um, whether whether it should have been or not, whether it's correct or true or not, that's that is completely beside the point as to the fact that it has in some way ease their mind or gave them something to hold on to. And you're just trying to take it away immediately. And that's just not going to yeah. work. Right, right. And, and so as people maybe come to you and ask specifically, like, what's your thoughts on, you know, this, this organization where it's, whether it's yeah. fair or Maxwell Institute, like, yeah. I, I think there's a way to maybe openly point out, well, I, I see certain biases there, which is fine, but there's certain biases there. And that's worth to take into account. But you know what, then, then lead mm-hmm. into discussion of like, what have you found helpful there and encouraging? What, how, yeah. how are you seeing it? Right. And yeah, you know, having a more broader conversation that way. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And, yeah. and, and to, and to get as specific as possible too, we sometimes tiptoe around everything, but I think you can drill down to, well, what exactly, like, what's the exact topic? Oh, it's about, you know, women in the priesthood or something. Oh, that, okay. Well, let's, let's talk about that thing. Um, what's this and what is this resource saying and what do you like about that? Okay. Okay. Um, and, and to, to ask, is it, are you interested in, in my perspective about that? And, and, and you make it clear to them that your care and regard for them is not contingent on them agreeing with you. That's, mm-hmm. that is crucial. And, and I say this to parents as well, parents whose children are going through faith transitions or perhaps disaffection from the church. They have to know that your love for them or your relationship with them is not contingent on whether or not they stay connected to the church. Mm-hmm. And they need to know that explicitly. Yeah. It can't be unspoken because it's already a cultural assumption. If I leave, then I will be disowned or I will be, you know, my parents, will, I'll devastate my parents and they won't love me or whatever. So we have to be clear with fellow church members and fellow family members and friends, regardless of where you end up, I love you because I love you, not because you're Latter-day Saint. Our relationship is not contingent on that. And, and leaders can make that clear as well. And then they have to do some hard thinking about what does that really look like then to love someone without trying to change them right now? What does that kind of love really look like? Yeah. So Blair, I'm curious as we get close to wrapping up here is, um, you know, you've talked about a lot of organizations, resources, academic standards. And again, as a lay leader, it's sort of so intimidating that, mm-hmm. I mean, what, how should a general lay leader engage with, with these resources? Yeah. Uh, any advice there? Yeah, I would suggest just getting familiar with a couple of things from different entities. So get a book from the Maxwell Institute and and read it. Um, get something, get a, a presentation from a fair conference that, that you found to be really helpful or, or edifying and have that in your back pocket. Read something uh, from Interpreter from Book of Mormon Central. Check something out from BYU Studies. Get familiar with podcasts. 
I would include leading saints in that. Uh, you're you're addressing these kind of issues, not in every episode, but it comes up, right? right? So uh, have a couple episodes in your back pocket. Read a couple dialogue articles. Just just be familiar with a couple of things from different entities to give you a sense, to give you something, uh, your own your own grasp of the situation. It'll take some time, but really not that much time. That's my recommendation for leaders if they want to connect with all these different things um just become just become a little bit familiar with them check something out yeah yeah and i, and I appreciate that because it's not like nobody expects a, a bishop to you know be reading mm -hmm. dialogue cover to cover or no. you know watching every fair presentation but i think as you do that right. you might be surprised you know the more you know I, I love attending and we've sponsored the fair conference uh the last few years and man, I, I, I watch one and I can't seem to back away from, from, from the next presentation, you know, it's just so fascinating to see how, where people are spending their research and time and, and articulating those things. So, so that's helpful. Um, wh what else have we missed here? I have a few more sort of closing questions here, but any other point or principle yeah. that uh, we haven't hit on that you'd like? Yeah. To one other thing I'd like to point out is that there are different general authorities that have different views about how apologetics should work. And this is really important because you'll have some uh, general authorities and I'll, I'll mention Elder Holland as an example who recently spoke at BYU and talked about musket fire and kind of used these military metaphors and has talked about... Um, Kind of in aggressive ways about uh, about defending the truth, and and that upset a lot of people. That upset people who felt like that that kind of metaphor does not ring true to their heart. It it, it seems uh, aggressive. It doesn't seem like what they would expect from the gospel. Other people say, "Oh, of course, like the gospel's strong, and like we got to stand up for truth and righteousness and be bold and you know stand for something." So you'll see members of the church just like. Uh, apostles and prophets will kind of have different views on this. And I fall completely in the pacifist camp, although I've been known to fire a musket here and there. Uh, that's like a literal a, musket or? No, no the metaphorical oh, oh, okay. I, I musket. See. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I've, you know, I can be a jerk sometimes. and But but I don't want to defend that as as something that's good for the church or anything like that. I, I'm, I believe that, um, that an approach driven by peaceful charity uh, is the way. So you have the musket thing, but then you also have Robert D. Hales, uh, an, an apostle uh, uh, who's, he's passed away, but one of my favorites, a very, very quiet and, and loving man. And I have this quote here that I wanted to read. And it says, uh, it says, recently, a group of bright, faithful young Latter-day Saints wrote down the pressing questions on their mind. And one sister asked me, why doesn't the church defend itself more actively against accusations? To her question, I would say, one of mortality's great tests come when our beliefs are questioned or criticized. In such moments, we may want to respond aggressively to put up our dukes, but these are important opportunities to step back, pray, and follow the Savior's example. Remember that Jesus himself was despised and rejected. And in Lehi's dream, those coming to the Savior also endured mocking and pointing fingers. But when we respond to our accusers as the Savior did, we not only become more Christ-like, but we invite others to feel his love and follow him as well. To respond in a Christ-like way can't be scripted or based on a formula. The Savior responded differently in every situation. When he was confronted by wicked King Herod, he remained silent. So sometimes, you know, Elder Hales is saying, sometimes we don't say anything. When Jesus stood before Pilate, he bore a simple and powerful testimony. Facing the money changers who were defiling the temple, he exercised his divine responsibility to preserve and protect what was sacred. He's talking about throwing over the, <laughs> the tables. And by the way... <laughs> 
I think that's a last resort. Like I'm, I think that's a Jesus prerogative. Uh, that's yeah. not a, that's not a Blair prerogative. I mean, uh, anyways, then, but Elder Hales got emotional here and he says, lifted up on a cross, Jesus uttered the incomparable Christian response. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Some people mistakenly think responses such as silence, meekness, forgiveness, and bearing humble testimony are passive or weak. But to love our enemies, bless them that curse us, do good to them that hate us, and pray for them which despitefully use us and persecute us takes faith, strength, and most of all, Christian courage. Hmm. That's That speaks to me, Kurt. That is gospel to me. Uh, and that's how I try to do to do apologetics. I love that. I'm just glad you, you shared that that uh, quote. Any, any other principle or thought? I want to make sure we we've given time to it all. But yeah, basically, I, I just would reiterate that the way we the way we talk, the way we connect, matters even more than the exact things that we say. And when people are having questions and doubts, they do feel lonely. They do feel alone in the church. They feel like there's not a place to exist that way. And it's on it's on church members to make that place and to to bring that that space for people the other thing i will say too as elder hales was saying um you know pr- love our enemies bless them that curse us if we just knee jerk defend everything we miss opportunities for repentance there are some things that we do as church members that we shouldn't do there there are things that we've corrected there are things that the church has changed on and if our knee jerk reaction is to treat any criticism like like we're being horribly persecuted Rather than to pause and reflect on what the criticism is and see if there's any kind of kernel of truth in it, then we miss the opportunity to repent and change. It's the same in our personal lives when someone has something mean to say about us. Uh, we can reflect on what that is and say, you know, is there anything to that? Why would the person say that? Is there something I can change? And we have an opportunity to repent. The church can do it and individuals can do it. Awesome. Well, Blair, I want to make sure we give a good solid plug for your, uh, your new podcast fireside. Um, I, what should people, if people search that and, uh, what should they expect to, to hear yeah. and what type of people you're interviewing? What, what's your goals with that podcast? Yeah. So the podcast is conversations with really incredible, smart people who have written books or created art that speaks to fundamental religious questions that sometimes maybe don't even seem religious. One of the episodes is, is called Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. And this scholar's argument is that uh, everybody has some kind of religion, something that their ultimate concern, something that they love. And you can tell what someone worships according to how they spend their time, how they behave, how they spend their money. Um, like that. And so at the root, even someone who professes to be a Christian, or in our case, Latter day Saint, may be worshiping something entirely different, depending on how we behave and how we orient our lives. And that's what Fireside is about, is talking to scholars like him about really interesting issues in a way that talks uh, to Latter-day Saints, but it's not a Latter-day Saint show. It's very broad. You're going to meet a lot of different people. The impetus behind it is the charge that we have to seek wisdom out of the best books. We have a scriptural injunction to seek wisdom out of the best books. And when that scripture was revealed, we didn't have all these Latter-day Saint books. We didn't have Deseret book. We didn't have <laughs> BYU Press and all these other, the Maxwell Institute or whatever. This is talking about books throughout the world. And mm-hmm. so that's what I'm trying to do is seek wisdom from the best books and talk to authors about them. So it's, it, it's 
really just fun, interesting conversations. And it's fireside because, you know, we, we have firesides in the church, these kind of special guest speakers that are kind yeah. of, you know, higher profile, but also this idea of where that word originally came from, which is a really intimate setting where you can have really deep conversations sitting around the fire at night under the stars and feeling the wonder and the awe of a night sky and feeling the warmth from a fire with people that you care about and who care about you the feeling of safety and warmth that's that's what fireside's trying to do is build a place for for people to spend time nice and will each episode uh, or does each episode have a flavor of latter day saint or does it just that happen to be that the host is a latter day saint yeah the host is a latter day saint and then season 1 has i believe it will have 10 episodes it may have a few more, but uh, two of those are Latter-day Saints. So okay. uh, it's mostly not Latter-day Saint guests uh, introducing them to our listeners. And and I would also, I'm also trying to broaden that audience out. I, I, yeah. I'd like listeners. I also wanted to show, frankly, that people could listen to if they've left the church, but they have a hunger and a need for a connection of spirituality, or they, they want something to be able to talk to, talk about with their parents who are still members or their friends who are still members and say, Hey, it's awkward talking about, you know, talking about the church or something with them, but, but this fireside episode's great. Let's like, we can talk about this and, and really have a connection there. So I wanted something that could really reach people who are current members of the church, strong members, Orthodox, heterodox, whatever. And also people who have left the church or who are just kind of disaffected from it. I really working hard to make something that everybody can gather around. There's a seat at the fireside for, for all of these people. Yeah. Well, well, <clears throat> I hope people check it out. Obviously, uh, wherever they're listening to this podcast, they can probably just search uh, Fireside and Blair Hodges and uh, should pop up there. And uh, hopefully people will check it out. And last question I have for you is, I'm just curious, as you have had this, this career, this uh, experience of exploring these different apologetic groups and perspectives and academic and intellectual thought. Um, how has that journey specifically helped you gain more faith in and become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Well, it it disproved something that I believed, which was that the more education someone gets, the more the more egotistical and the more the more they think they know <laughs> and the more rigid they are and the more, you know, arrogant. And I've seen arrogance, you know, I've seen scholarly arrogance. I've displayed arrogance. But behind all of that, what I've really seen is how much I have to learn. And the more I've learned about something, the more the horizon sort of recedes away. And, oh, wait, I, I thought I had all these answers. And what I found was even better questions. <laughs> so that's, that's what my faith journey, that's the shape my faith journey has taken is this ongoing quest for further light and knowledge. And it includes uncertainty and and my faith in Christ is is one that's that's hopeful not not I don't I don't know I, I can't say that I know these things at this point not everybody who goes through uh, who, you know who gets academic degrees winds up in this particular place but it happens to be where I'm at and so uh, I'm not a knower I'm a hoper and a believer and and I live in these ways and that's what belief means to me, to live in certain ways according to certain hopes. And I have those hopes. So education in general has just, <laughs> you think it's going to give you answers, but for me, it just gave me more questions.
And that concludes this How I Lead interview. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I would ask you, could you take a minute and drop this link in an email, on social media, in a text, wherever it makes the most sense, and share it with somebody who could relate to this, this experience. And this is how we develop as leaders, just hearing what the other guy's doing, trying some things out, testing, adjusting for your area. And uh, that's where great leadership's discovered. Right? So we would love to have you uh, share this with uh, somebody in this calling or a related calling, and that would be great. And also, if you know somebody, any type of leader, who would be a fantastic guest on the How I Lead segment, reach out to us. Go to leadingsaints.org slash contact. Maybe send this individual an email letting them know that you're going to be suggesting their name for this interview. We'll reach out to them and uh, see if we can line them up. So again, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact, and there you can submit all the information and let us know. And maybe they will be on a future How I Lead segment on the Leading Saints podcast. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to access the three most popular sessions of the Liberating Saints Library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.